You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben Folks, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How you doing? terrific i don't know you said fantastic now i feel like i need to top that i expected you to say like fine or good now you you come at me with fantastic i gotta go i gotta go superlative here but nobody's gonna believe it coming from you (laughs) no no i didn't believe it coming from you that's why i was so startled (laughs) now ben the people on the video chat will know this but the people listening to just the audio will not hair is looking tall these days bud that hair's got to be four bigger. inches tall right now. It just keeps getting bigger. There's just so goddamn much of it. It goes. Look at that. Look, I know. It's just it's, it's, just, it's it's kind of absurd. You look you look kind of like a like an anchor man from the '80s, but like you just like you've let yourself go. Like your hair I let is myself just go all right. It's just gonna keep going up and up and up. You're like George St. Pierre suddenly showing up with hair one day, freaking everybody People out. Like it, yeah. Um, I tell you what's really crazy is now that we're into the the summer of swole, I'm out there in the garage, Chad. Mm-hmm. I'm jacking the weight. Yeah. It's hot in there. There's a lot of sweat just being poured out. And when you have this much goddamn hair, it just becomes an entirely different operation. You know? It's a mess. Yeah. It's oh, a damn mess is it what be- it is. It begs the question how long you're going to be able to hang on to that growth with uh, summer of swole. You're going to be out there working hard, sweating a lot. At some point, you're just going to be like, you know what? It's not worth it anymore. I got to take it down. You're going to go you know, inside, grab the wall clippers. And the next thing you know, you'll roll in here. Uh, it's looking normal again. We didn't come this far just to impulsively shave it all off. And when I'm sitting around here come September, October, looking like fucking Fabio <laughs> in, in two different ways. We'll see. We'll see who's laughing then. Yeah. You know? Uh, you got a better chance of looking like Slash from Guns N' Roses than looking like Fabio, man, with that with that hair. It's, you're not going to get into, into any straight uh, romance novel cover tresses with, with what you got going on there. It's going to be a different look. <laughs> that, that may be. That may be. But you know what? I'm, I'm here for the journey. I'm excited to see where it goes. Just a reminder, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. Come for the MMA talk. Stay for the talk about Ben's hair. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. Unfortunately, kids, Patreon pledge month is over. But that doesn't mean you have to miss out on all the fun. Consider supporting the show by joining up over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Get loads, absolute loads of extra content, video content as well. You want to see the lettuce? You want to see what's going on up top over on Ben Folks's head? You got to get the video content. Get over on the Patreon. You'll also get access to our official Discord message board. The coolest people in MMA hang out there. They're constantly chatting it up about this sport, about other stuff. And the only rule over there is 
no assholes. We can only keep making the show with the support of our awesome listeners. So there it is. Come party with us, you guys. We think it's the funnest, smartest, most welcoming, most welcoming group of men and women talking fights online. Head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. Ben, you know, during pledge month, we were giving away free t-shirts uh, for anybody who signed up for an annual subscription. And I got to say, a lot of people did. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people took advantage of, people of that did. Offer. I worked myself into a shoot here with the uh <laughs> with the t-shirt mailing but you know we're making progress a lot of people are getting their shirts but the shirts are already starting to show up in people's mailboxes and if you want to scoop up some dope cme merchandise just head over to our merch shop over at uh comainevent.com over there you, you'll find old favorites like the original dundasso always cheat t-shirt the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirt and of course the best seller on the market the bobby knuckles t-shirt Go over there to comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says shop. That'll get you there. We're partnering with our friends Superconductor on the shop. They are a brand and design studio. You've seen their work with the CME for a long time. Our longtime collaborator, Johnny Ashcroft, we can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on the Instagrams at studio superconductor we got music this week from our friend dion rodriguez a music producer from deltona florida if you like what you hear from him on the show you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7 and again remember that's the word beats with a z beats Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one is one title fight and one maybe number one contender fight. Enough to get you to buy UFC 289 this Saturday. Let's hash it out. And in round number two, did Kai Kara France get screwed on Saturday? And honestly, you guys, how many times are we going to do this with these morning after conversations about the judging? And in round number three, Dana White reminds us that Jared Gordon is not a doctor and says he had no business in the first place being in that fight against Jim Miller that the UFC called him and offered him, then gave him a new contract and a raise to accept, then flew him to Las Vegas so he could be in the fight. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by our friends at NordVPN. We've been preaching the virtues of NordVPN to you guys for a long time now. Ben and I both have it installed on all of our devices. It's hassle-free and it works great. NordVPN gives you the fastest VPN on the planet. It provides online protection with a single click. Don't miss your favorite content. Even when you're traveling, stay at home virtually and stay safe from malware with threat protection. Ben, I know you love yourself some NordVPN. What's your favorite part about using it? Well, you know, what I love is how it'll just kick on to protect you at whatever public Wi-Fi you might happen to be jumping onto. You don't even have to worry about it. It doesn't matter where you are, Chad. It doesn't matter if you're down at the barbershop telling them to go to hell. You don't need their services anymore. It doesn't matter if you're down at the beauty supply store picking yourself up a series of gels and creams and pomades to go in your lovely mane of hair. It doesn't matter if you're out even at the club, Chad, telling the ladies they can look but don't touch the hair. Mm-hmm. NordVPN's got you covered. Wow. You know, you actually uh, live real close to a barbershop that is called Fresh Fades. Mm-hmm. So why don't you wander in there and see if they can hook you up with one of those Fresh Fades. 
Listen, they don't have anything down there at Fresh Fades that I'm in the need of right now. I'm I'm on my own journey. I wish them well at Fresh Fades, right mm-hmm. there next to the to the laundromat. But we're on we're on different paths. Yeah, I see. Uh, do you want to do this next paragraph about the cybersecurity apps that you're supposed to read, but then you never do? <sighs> do you want to send the shit to me? Well, you've got. You're supposed to have it. You're supposed to already have it. You don't have it. Is that what you're telling me? I don't have it. All right. You can also ask access Nord's amazing cybersecurity apps, including the NordPass password manager, helping you keep all your passwords straight and close at hand. And with the Nord Locker encrypted cloud storage app, you can keep your files backed up, synced, and protected from snoopers, loss, or malware in its secure cloud. Nobody will see, touch, or sell them. And by the way, do you want to get four free months instead of the usual three? Right now, if you sign up, using the link exclusively for co-main event podcast listeners you can every purchase of a two-year plan will receive four bonus months when you go to use nordvpn.com slash co-main and use the code co-main when you sign up that includes all the plans we usually tell you about the standard plan the plus plan and the whole enchilada the complete plan it's risk-free with nord's 30-day money-back guarantee and hey guys not for nothing but you might want to jump on that four bonus months now because uh that thing's about to expire. So you might want to get your four bonus months, grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash comain or use the code comain. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our guy Darkwing Duck, frequent emailer of the show. He writes, gentlemen, the decision to remove Jared Gordon from his fight with Jim Miller at the last minute is being well documented. But what about the flip side of the coin? After Jared gets pulled, the UFC has to go out and find poor Jesse Butler, who comes in and gets knocked out in 23 seconds. What are we honestly even doing here? Now, Ben, this is a decent point. We're going to talk, obviously, about Jared Gordon and what's going on with him later in the show, uh, especially after comments from Dana White following the UFC on ESPN 46 card over the weekend. Uh, But let's not forget about Jesse Butler. Jesse Butler takes this fight, what, on about two days notice, comes in to make his UFC debut against Jim Miller, a.k.a. the guy with more UFC fights than anybody else, and... I I mean, let's just say it doesn't go Jesse Butler's way, right? Uh, Jim Miller comes out, flattens him with a punch in 23 seconds, then gives him another little shot on the way down, just for good measure, just to make sure he's fully out. And uh, that's all she wrote for Jesse Butler. So, you know, first you got Ludwig Klein supposed to be in this fight. Then you got Jared Gordon supposed to be in this fight. And then you're scrambling around last minute. You go get Jesse Butler. And it doesn't seem like this thing did anything good for anybody. Well, I mean, except maybe Jim Miller, who gets the 23-second knockout. And a nice little bonus for doing it, too. And that's got to be kind of an easier night of work than some of the other possibilities that were suggested. Imagine my surprise that the guy taking his UFC debut fight on two days' notice, a weight class up from where he normally fights, against the most experienced UFC fighter in history, did not get the W. Shocking, I yeah. say. Yeah. And we know we know kind of what the calculation is. We've heard this from managers and from fighters before where you've been waiting to get your guy in the UFC. UFC calls up and they go, good news and bad news. Good news is we got a spot for you. Bad news is it's two days from now. And it's up a weight class. And you're fighting Jim Miller. And you know the fighters going through the calculation like, well... 
if I say, no, this seems like a terrible fucking idea for me, then maybe it's a long time before that next call comes. Maybe it doesn't come. Maybe in the meantime, you have to take some more fights and they don't go your way or whatever. Uh, this could be a fork in the road for your career. You want to say yes to the UFC. You know that they like to hear yes. For, they like those kind of fighters who are just going to say, sure, boss, anything you need and get in there. And yet the deck is so thoroughly stacked against you here. And I guess you're hoping, okay, we do this one for you. And then next time we get a real fight, right? Like one in our weight class, one where we have adequate opportunity to prepare and against somebody who is also around the UFC debut level. You hope that's what will happen. It doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, and in fairness, in Jesse Butler's defense, he's 31 years old. He's been a pro since 2015. He actually has a lot of amateur fights before that, 12 amateur fights before uh, he even turned pro. He had been on a five-fight winning streak. His last loss was back in 2019. So, you know, maybe if you're a 31-year-old guy who's on a hot streak, you've been fighting for eight years, you think, well, hell, man. Here's my chance. If I don't take it now, maybe I'm not going to get it. So I don't necessarily know that you can fault Jesse Butler for taking the fight. Of course, as we all found out, it didn't work out for him. But I don't know, man. Would it kill him to just not have the fight? Would it kill him to just uh, give Jim Miller his money for showing up and say, I don't know, man. We'll get, you, we'll get you back in here in a month. Obviously, everybody is incentivized to make the fight happen. You know, Jim Miller wants to do it. He's been having a training camp. He's he's ready to go. He's going to want to step in there, especially if he thinks he stands to get his show win and a performance of the night bonus. You definitely know he's going to want to step in there. The UFC obviously needs the content hours. The fans want to see it. Everybody wants to take the fight. Jesse Butler wants to take the fight. But sometimes, you know, maybe enough is enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I understand the pressure that the matchmakers are under there because they they want to keep your fight together. The the key thing of what you just said there was give Jim Miller his money yeah. for showing up. Is that is do you want to do that part? Because we've seen before where sometimes it'll be like, okay, we'll give you your show money, you know, but you're you have that money budgeted anyway. You can give him the win money too. You could give him the whole paycheck there and you don't lose a goddamn thing, you know? Because especially an event like this. It's not like you make a cent less if you just don't have that fight on there, on the card at all. If you just scratch that one. The UFC's money stays exactly the same. You're you're not selling a bunch of tickets. You're at the Apex. You're getting guaranteed money from ESPN+. You could just give him his show and win money, and it's totally fine. The big money machine rolls on. And the thing that the matchmakers are saying is, we know you spent money on this camp. We want to get you the fight so that you don't have to go into the whole training for this camp. And it's because the UFC has historically not liked to give guys their show and win money. They, they give you the show money kind of when they have to, when it when it would be a real dick move not to. But instead, their workaround is, we'll do whatever we can to try to keep that fight together. Yeah. And then you end up getting a fight like this where it's like, okay, I mean, cool for Jim Miller. I guess he got another knockout win. He got another UFC win on his record. Got that bonus. Always glad to see good things happen for Jim Miller. But it's not exactly a terribly competitive fight. And it's so much because of that situation yeah it's also easy to criticize in hindsight because i'm going to do this question next from our guy patrick milder over on uh patreon he writes 
The UFC probably wasn't looking to get into the Muhammad Neymov business when they matched him up against Jamie Malarkey for his debut, but it was a pretty awesome comeback for the underdog, am I right? Now this obviously an undercard fight at lightweight. Jamie Malarkey came in as a fairly uh, significant favorite, and he ends up losing TKO in the second round. Muhammad Neymov, who took this fight just on about five days' notice after Gurum Kudaladze uh, was unable to to take the fight due to visa issues. And he comes in there, he gets the win, obviously, making his UFC debut against a, a heavy favorite. So I guess on one hand, you got extreme example, Jesse Butler, who took the fight on two days' notice, gets absolutely waxed by Jim Miller. And then you got Mohamed Neymov, who comes in, makes good on the opportunity, gets the underdog win against Jesse Malarkey. So I don't know. Are we being too tough on the on the matchmaking, on the last-minute matchmaking here if you're going to give a, a, a different guy the same opportunity? Well, it is a different situation, though, because you're talking about a guy who comes in at 7-2, uh, and 8-2, and two, uh, I believe uh, Muhammad Namov was, fighting a guy in Jamie Malarkey who's like 16-5. and five. So it's like you're pretty close to the kind of level. I mean, sure, the, the short notice aspect of it is always going to add a little bit of level of difficulty, but that's a far cry from, it is my first UFC fight ever, and I am fighting Jim fucking Miller. You know, like, the the most experienced guy. Like, the, the, the disparity between their UFC experience could not be greater. So, those are kind of different situations. And, you know, I'm sure... It's the same kind of argument we get into when we say, hey, shouldn't somebody throw in the towel in some of these one-sided fights? And then somebody's going to go, but look at this one out of 20 where somebody came back after looking like they were suffering a terrible beating and uh, their corner should save them from it. And they managed to land one good punch and they come back and they win. That's the one that gets held up as an example that then excuses all the other ones where we just let somebody take the, a bad beating. And it's the same kind of thing where, you know, your your odds aren't going to be great when you're taking it on short notice anyway. Can you still win some of those, especially if the matchup is, you know, believable and, and credible anyway? Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're in shape and, you know, if it's around your actual weight class. Mohamed Neymar and Jim Miller, the two guys who pick up performance of the night bonuses. So that's nice for them. Next question this week comes to us from noted children's horror author R.L. Stein. Okay. Who writes, if you score the main event round by round, of course, R.L. Stein here is talking about uh, Amir Albazi and Kai Kara France, who we'll talk about coming up a little bit later in the show. He says, if you score it round by round, with each round being given to a fighter based on having at least two out of the three judges awarding them that round, then Kara France would have won. I don't know if it would solve anything, but I hadn't thought of it like that before, and it seemed interesting. It might help to kind of nullify one quote-unquote bad judge. Disclaimer, I am from New Zealand, and I thought Albazi won. Now, I didn't know that R.L. Stein was from New Zealand, but that's good to know. Uh, <laughs> we hear frequently a lot of different ideas on how to fix MMA judging floating around in the ether, coming to us via listener mail. People always have ideas. I got to tell you, this ain't the worst one I've ever heard. I guess it involves coming up with a with some manner of cumulative score instead of just three different scorecards that then you use to determine who won. But yeah, I mean, you do oftentimes see these outliers, these judges who are just going to turn in a wacky card where you're going to give a couple of rounds to a guy that seem inconceivable 
And maybe you do mitigate that a little bit if you go with something out of, you know, at least two of the three judges have to agree in order to put a round in one guy's corner. That's actually not a terrible idea, honestly. Uh, just because it sort of negates the ability of one judge doing his own thing to really fuck with some stuff. I, I mean... I like this idea way more than I like whenever somebody comes up with some very math intensive idea mm-hmm. where it's like a half point for this. And, and and it's just like, man, often enough, we have fucked up just even the 10 point must system just when it comes to adding that up. Like, don't act like it hasn't happened that we've said the wrong name in the ring just because we did the math wrong. That has happened in the UFC. So uh, this is a little more simplistic. And I kind of like the idea that it's sort of just a shrunken down version of what we're trying to do with having three judges there to begin with right so uh i don't hate it i don't hate it i also though think that as we'll get into when we discuss this thing we we sometimes act like if we could just get the right system of judging the right way of adding up the scorecards or tabulating the stuff then it would all be fine and it wouldn't we'd still have plenty to argue about and this fight is a great example of why I mean, some fights are just going to be close. That's just how it is. So next question this week comes to us from Percy Link on Patreon, who writes, why aren't bigger stars or those on the brink of stardom knocking down Francis Ngannou's manager's door for his services? Uh, Short and to the point from Percy Link there. Uh, This, I mean, it's kind of a good question because you see uh, the guys from CAA and Markel Martin, who I think did a great job with Francis Ngannou, both while he was still in the UFC, kind of getting him what appeared to be some high dollar sponsors and some high profile opportunities, despite the fact that you're not really supposed to have or you're not allowed to advertise your sponsors in a UFC setting. Remember when they got him that watch? They got him a sweet mm-hmm. watch sponsorship, which I thought was a great kind of workaround of the whole UFC athlete outfitting policy. Uh, then you go ahead, get Francis Ngannou into free agency and you land him maybe the best single free agent deal in the history of mixed martial arts with the thing he's got going on over in PFL. Now, uh, I think a couple of the answers of why you don't see more people seeking out actual real representation in MMA is number one, a lot of people are scared. Uh, we have seen people run themselves out of the UFC and we've seen managers get run out of the UFC for uh, just like not really playing ball with the way the fight company likes to do it. We've seen how expendable it considers almost everyone to be. So I think there are a lot of fighters that just want to stay on the UFC's good side. The other thing is maybe the CAA or any other big, you know, sports management agency just isn't going to represent a lot of UFC fighters because they're not going to make that much money. It's another, uh, nifty side uh, positive for the UFC of not paying guys very much because, you know, you're not going to get a high profile sports, baseball, football, basketball agent to come in and be like, yes, give me that 10% of your 20 and 20, please. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that how do we know there are not fighters uh, trying to get that representation and that the, the answer on the other end is, Nah, what do I want with a cut of your, you know, 40 and 40? It's not worth our time. And I think that that's been an issue for a while. Like we've seen every once in a while, you know, not so much in recent years, but every once in a while we used to see there would be somebody who would get like some big management firm behind them, right? Like some actual, like for real sports management agency 
who had a bunch of players in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, stuff like that. Every once in a while, somebody like that would come around and dabble in MMA, and usually not for long, <laughs> because the money just isn't there. Your cut of the money is not going to be great, and plus, when you talk to some of the agents who do still deal with major sports leagues and the UFC, and uh, Paradigm is a good example of this, and I've talked to them about it on several occasions, they go, look, when you're negotiating with an NFL team, all this stuff is kind of out there in the open. You have a lot to to understand how they're viewing your guy versus how they viewed other people. You know, hey, our guy is a cornerback with third-year experience, and, you know, this is kind of what he's done so far. You can look around the league at somebody else in a, in a comparable position. There's a third-year cornerback with a, who, who around, you know, is regarded around the same uh, level as our guy, and here's what he's making. And so... We have a framework to at least operate on when we ask for a certain amount of money or when you suggest a certain amount of money and that that doesn't really exist in the UFC and that they're always kind of looking for like, what are the benchmarks? Tell us what equals what? How many fights does he have to win? How, where does he have to get in the rankings? What will equal this kind of money that he wants? And the UFC can't really tell you that or they won't really tell you that. And so like, I, I think that both the issue of there not being that much money in it for the agents, but also that the process itself maybe being a pain in the ass to deal with kind of discourages them. And the UFC does not have a problem with that. They would like it to just be, you know, mainly a few scumbag managers dominating the space who are going to play to the UFC's interests, sometimes right out in the open and at the expense of their own fighters' interests. And they are going to fucking straight up tell us that they are doing it. Yeah. And the UFC likes to have those guys because those guys are very pliable and easy to work with from the UFC's perspective. Not to mention all of that, with your right, which you're right about, but I would imagine that dealing with an MLB, NHL, NBA, NFL team also comes along with a modicum of professionalism. Whereas yeah. I assume if you are a high-profile sports agent, you would think that dealing with the UFC was just talking to a bunch of fucking maniacs. So... <laughs> Not only would it be like annoying and a huge pain in the ass for you, but you would be doing it for way less money than you normally do. So that's got to create a pretty unappetizing package for most yeah. uh, most actual sports agents. Look at all the, the publicized stuff that Mark L. Martin went through while he was working, trying to negotiate with the UFC on Francis Ngannou's behalf. That's That'd be enough to scare away most people, I think. Yeah. All right. Last question this week from Joe Williams. Subject line, Greg Hardy is trash. He writes, Greg Hardy couldn't cut it in BKFC, so he went over to boxing where he was knocked down twice and could be seen stumbling around the ring. Has there ever been a high-level athlete from another sport who has failed so terrifically? This is like chicken soup for my soul. Uh, so we are, we're going to break our Greg Hardy uh, ban here on the co-main event podcast for the next couple minutes. This story comes with a link that has some videos on it. First of all, I just want to say Greg Hardy is competing in something called team combat league promotions, where he appears to be part of a team called the Dallas destroyers. Okay. And he is fighting a guy who comes from a different team. I don't even know what's happening here, but they are in fact engaged in a boxing match. Greg Hardy gets knocked down, gets up, comes back tries to keep going, actually lands a couple of good shots, but then gets pretty much flattened by his opponent, Alexander Flores, here. Uh, it seems like Greg Hardy has fallen pretty far from the days of his 
what being an all pro defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. Obviously things did not go great for him in the UFC. Then things did not go great for him in BKFC. And now things have not gone great for him in this team combat league promotions bout. We also had uh, a story about him out a couple weeks ago of him like selling phone plans at Walmart or something. And basically being like, I didn't know this was going to be the gig and I'm going to quit as soon as I get out of here. But, uh, not that we need to have any sympathy at all for Greg Hardy, but it's been a uh, it's been a long, slow slide from the top for Greg Hardy. It has, and again, I said it before. I'll say it again. My thought after watching this, at least the end of this boxing match, is Greg Hardy really is making this shit look hard. <laughs> he is helping us all appreciate how difficult combat sports can be. It's, for years, we used to tell ourselves this shit, right? That, hey, any decent, good, like NFL starter level athlete could come over in here, especially at heavyweight, and just fucking wreck shop on these guys just through sheer size, strength, speed, athleticism. They'd just absolutely destroy a bunch of MMA heavyweights. Greg Hardy helped us figure out that that was way wrong. Yeah. Not even close to true. And he's going to do the same <laughs> the same public service for boxing and for bare-knuckle boxing. He's just spreading it all around. Just being like, all this shit is way harder than you think. Look how badly I am doing at it. Yeah. And to answer specifically the question here, I think the dirty little secret is that you probably see a lot of athletes, high-level athletes, come over from other sports and try to do various combat sports and fail at it. And you just don't hear about it. Because they are not taken and injected into high-profile situations like the UFC did with Greg Hardy. In fact, the guy that Greg Hardy fought in his first professional fight on the Dana White Contender Series, Austin Lane, was also a former NFL player who's been, you know, trying to make his way in MMA. We'd never heard from him again after he fought Greg Hardy because the UFC didn't take him and insist on putting him on seven main cards or whatever right in a row that we all had to watch. So I think we underestimate how hard these fight sports can be. I think we underestimate all of the qualities that it takes to be successful in mixed martial arts because it's certainly not just athleticism. You have to have a bunch of other stuff going for you in order to be successful here. And I like that. I like that you're looking at the bright side, Ben Folks. You're taking the silver lining and the dark cloud and all this and just saying, thanks, Greg Hardy, for making this shit look as hard as it actually is. Yeah. Giving us some much needed perspective. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, the UFC is trekking up north of the border to one of your favorite locations, Rogers Arena, up there in Vancouver, British Columbia. We are going to be putting on UFC 289 this Saturday night. 
Unlike most UFC pay-per-views event of recent memory, this one only has one championship fight on it. Amanda Nunes defending her women's bantamweight strap against Irene Aldana. And then, of course, Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush in the co-main in what could be a lightweight number one contender fight, except that you got Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier coming up a month later, probably going to try to steal that thunder to take the number one contender spot. Have we just been spoiled throughout the first half of the year with a bunch of like pretty great UFC pay-per-views right in a row that now we look at this one with uh, Nunez against Aldana and... Dariush and Chucky Olives and we're going to look at look at it and say I don't know seems a little low profile to me uh, possibly I mean this one I think that if you if you look at it from the right perspective and you go in with the right expectations then I think that you can appreciate that this has some stuff to offer I feel like the we the approach that we've talked about that the UFC has kind of shifted to in the past with uh, pay-per-views is to say, hey, yes, the fight nights are kind of shit, but it's because we're loading up the pay-per-views. And here, where you've got you know, a, a title fight at the very top, albeit, though, one where you got Amanda Nunes coming in, the dominant champion, against sort of a replacement challenger. You know, like Irene Aldana, they're not saying that she's not a credible test for Amanda Nunes at this point, but it's also like her winning streak is at two. Two in a row. Like, that's not a mandate you know, that's not like a she absolutely must fight for the title now or there is no justice in the universe kind of situation. It was, well, we had the trilogy in mind with Juliana Pena that we had to scrap that, but we're not going to move the fight because it's what we were counting on to be the title fight on this card. So who who will pick up the phone and say yes? And it was Ariana Danya. And so that doesn't exactly light a fire under people. And then when you look down at the rest of the main card, you know, Chucky Olives versus Benil Darius, that's a fight right there. That's just a that's that's a relevant fight for the division. Probably going to be a good fight between you know two of the guys who are among the best lightweights in the world. Anyway, you cut it, and then after that, you got some stuff where it's like, okay, this is all right. I mean, your guy Nate Landwehr is on here. I, I want to make sure you know that going in. I want to make sure that it doesn't slip by you again. I know you like you got yourself a, a Nate Landwehr alert at this point set up. Yeah, Nate the Train. I don't want to be caught unawares. No, when Nate the train is going to fight because I need to see that he's going to go out there and just act like an absolute wild man from start to finish. And so I'll, I always want to see when Nate Landwehr fights. That's that's appointment viewing for me. Main event but, style here with with Nunez and, and Aldana. I mean, it figures to be potentially a pretty fun fight. You got two two fighters that like to strike out there going to try to do the damn thing. Uh, you know, Nunez said that Aldana was the the opponent that the UFC, I think, originally approached her with. And then she got shuffled out and another fight with Juliana Pena got shuffled in and then that got shuffled out and Aldana got shuffled back in. So Nunez has been in some ways preparing for this one for a while. She's glad to have Aldana back in. She says she says it feels, quote, less heavy to fight Aldana rather than going up against Pena for another kind of grudge match. And so, I don't know, there's some positives there, but I just think, you know, when we've been spoiled a little bit recently with two title fights and a lot of much more high-profile matchups, this one just feels a little, just a little underwhelming, I suppose. You know, you mentioned that this has the potential to be a good main event. I was a little bit surprised at the betting odds on this one here, because, you know, a lot of times when Amanda Nunes shows up to fight, the lines get out of whack crazy fast. Yeah. And you end up with a big, big number on her side. 
you know, I'm just looking at sort of like historically, like they, they got evened out in the Juliana Pena series just because, you know, Juliana Pena won the first one. And so you come back in and the rematch, she closes as a minus 245 favorite after opening as a minus 250 favorite. So it stayed right about there. And then she, you know, she dominated that fight. This one, Amanda Nunez opened as a minus 650 favorite. I'm looking at this from Best Fight Odds, which does you the service of showing you all the historical matchups here. Uh, and right now, it's going off at a mi- about minus 330, wow. which, if you take out the Pena fight, is closer than we've seen in Amanda Nunez's fight in a, in a while. She, you know, there's a whole bunch of these where she was opening as 10 to 1 and still closing at 7 to 1. You know, like there's, there's a lot of those out there where uh, she. It was just so heavily favorited, and here where for for Amanda Nunes, this is a that's that's almost a damn pick'em. Yeah, with her merely a three to one favorite, you know. Well, it sounds like there's been some Aldana money coming in to move the line that far, but at the same time, like there are some legitimate questions around Amanda Nunes right now. I don't know how many of them will prove to be uh, detrimental when you actually get in the cage, but she's 35 years old. She only fought one time in 2022. She recently left American top team to start her own gym. And, you know, people, Dana White was publicly questioning whether or not she still has the hunger and all this other stuff. Uh, she had talked about contemplating retirement throughout her saga with Juliana Pena. There's some question of whether this will be her final appearance, whether this is it for her in the UFC. So, I mean, if you're looking for reasons to question the greatest female fighter of all time and a long time two division dominant champion in the UFC, I think they're out there at the same time. Despite the pink on her Wikipedia page, you know, in the first Juliana Pena fight a couple of years ago, it's pretty hard to imagine Amanda Nunes going out there and losing still. It's just a thing that, my brain just doesn't picture it right now. Yeah. I I mean, I think that at least some element of this must be that we're looking at Amanda Nunes and going, well, at some point she's got it. Like, similar to what we saw with like Valentina Shevchenko, you know, you're going to show up and somebody else is going to be super hungry for that title. Whereas for you, it's kind of just another night. Yeah. And I think that there's, it's sort of a natural thing for us to be anticipating that, especially as you know, being 35 years old and having been at the top for so damn long that we're just sort of being like, well, it can't go on indefinitely. Like sometime one of these people got to show up and they just want it more than you do and they catch you. Um, but it is also like when you're trying to picture exactly how that happens other than, you know, she screws up or somebody else, I don't want to say gets lucky, but gets fortunate. Uh, it is hard to picture. Like, what do you do better than Amanda Nunes at this point? Yeah. All right. Let's spend a couple minutes before we move on. Just talking about Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush. Benil Dariush hasn't lost since 2018. Ben folks, he's 24, four and one overall. He's won eight fights in a row. He has been asking for a high profile opponent pretty politely. Most of the time for years now, he just beat Mateusz Gamrod at UFC 280 in October of last year. Prior to that, Tony Ferguson and Carlos Diego Ferreira, and then Hot Sauce Holtzman. But he has not really jumped up into this elite class yet while he's been on this run. Now he gets to fight the former champion, Charles Oliveira, making his first appearance since he lost the strap to Islam Mahachev, also at UFC 280 in October of last year. Excuse me, that officially, officially was for the vacant strap but we all know the champion still had a name at that point and it was charles Oliveira. and that ain't the champion's name anymore 
but here he is trying to turn away Benil Dariush from the lightweight elite. Uh, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's nice to see Dariush get this chance. Finally, after eight wins in a row, he's going to get the chance to see if he can be something approaching the number one contender in one of the UFC's most competitive divisions. Seems like a nice guy. I'm glad to see him get the chance. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this one, it just seems like a a sign of how stacked the lightweight division is where you got all these people who are plausible contenders at the same time, you know, a former champion, a guy also trying uh, trying to make his case as a, a future title contender. And you can just sort of pull those names out of a hat and be like, all right, Chucky Olives versus Benil Dariush. That's a banger, right? Just go ahead and throw that one as the co-main event on a pay-per-view. And yep, we'll watch. Hashtag we'll watch that one. Yeah. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben Folks, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, you know that that Ultimate Fighter is going. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I heard something about that. Uh, mm-hmm. They got the, uh, who's coaching that again? It's uh, it's uh, the Irish fellow oh, yeah, yeah. named Conor McGregor. Okay, sure. I've, He's coaching I've opposite Michael Chandler. I think they're a couple episodes in at this point. Uh, then people at this post-fight press conference on Saturday were asking Dana White about, you know, how it's going and Conor McGregor being back around. We hear he's getting back in the USADA pool. Um, does that mean we're going to do this shit by the end of the year? Uh, and Dana White seems like maybe walking back a little bit some <laughs> of our hopes for Conor McGregor. Not exactly promising that we will get that shit in before 2023 is up. He says, quote, you can't think like that. That's I'm, I'm looking at the MMA fighting story by Jed Mayshew over there. That's the business we're in. Anything is possible in this business. Anything is possible. You don't know. You guys don't. You guys know this much <laughs> here in brackets makes a small motion with his fingers of what goes on behind the scenes and how hard it is to put all these fights together. First of all, Connor called me a couple days ago and loved the first episode of The Ultimate Fighter and saying how happy he was to be a part of it. And I think being here and being part of the environment and everything else, he felt it again and felt like he wants to get back and fight. The one thing you guys have to understand is this kid has so much money. It's like Habib now. He's guys got shitloads of money and it's hard to reel these guys back in and get them fired up to get in and fight fucking kidding me <laughs> sounds a little bit like we're being like oh no hold on got the rich guy don't want to fight rich guy wants to be on tv promote his whiskey brand maybe but you guys not exactly saying yeah this shit is a done deal and we're gonna have this fight i mean i thought that's the whole idea behind the tough coaches is that we put those guys against each other in the coaching thing so that we can hype a coming fight. And now it kind of sounds like we're saying that we hope we can make that fight. Yeah. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Wow. Not not just brimming with confidence that the fight is, is going to be booked in a timely and efficient fashion. Connor's getting up there into Habib territory. What with the having money and whatnot. Does Dana White have any money? I can't remember. <laughs> Is he, is he doing okay? He's got some money. Got some money in the bank. Doesn't have Somehow $7 he in his showing bank up like to work. some of the UFC yeah. fighters do. It's interesting. Uh, well, Ben, you know what I do uh, when I'm looking around for an are you fucking kidding me sometimes? I just think to myself, what's Colby Covington up to? <laughs> well, it turns out he made an appearance on something called MSCS Media, which I spent approximately two minutes on the YouTube page of before determining it appeared to be some manner of misinformation and 
you know, biased journalism kind of podcast. I don't know. Anyway, here's his quote about whether or not John Jones is the greatest MMA fighter of all time. That's opinion based. Covington said, that's whoever's opinion that was writing that piece from ESPN that day. That's cool. That's your opinion. But there's probably 20, 30, 40 million people in America that don't think the opposite. Now, that's not what he meant to say. Don't think the opposite. Yeah. He meant to say think the opposite, right? So just just go with that. And here's what he says next. People in the Republican Party respect people that are blue collar, that have a clean slate that aren't breaking the law doing these violent acts. Everybody knows the multiple steroid tests that he failed. So how how can you call yourself a clean cut athlete and the greatest of all time when you cheated on multiple steroid tests and broke many laws? For me, the greatest fighter of all time has to be a good fighter in the cage and outside the cage. Uh, Goddamn. I wish these journalists wouldn't keep bringing politics into mixed martial arts. You fucking kidding me with this guy's going to just the Republican Party, he says, when yeah. asked a question about John Jones. I'm like, Get the fuck out of here, man. Don't, I don't have time. For also, that. famously averse to committing crimes, the Republican Party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Meanwhile, we'll, tomorrow we'll get one, a new headline about which latest January 6th dude has been sentenced to prison. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe maybe think about that. Fucking kidding me. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad... We got five rounds, 25 minutes of fighting in the main event on Saturday night, and we end up 47-48, 48-47, 48-47 for Amir Albazi over Kai Kara France. And predictably, a lot of people use the old internet to make their displeasure known, some of them very, very vociferously. First of all, who'd you have winning that fight? And do you think that this is a situation where we should take the opportunity to re-examine what we're doing with judging because they are absolutely screwing these athletes out of their glory and their money, as Israel Adesanya suggested. Well, you know, there probably is a problem with with judging in certain fights. I still think we we tend to shine a spotlight on these questionable judges' decisions when the truth is there's so many damn decisions in mixed martial arts, probably 95% of them are proper and done correctly. And then you get one that obviously happens in the main event here. So it gets a lot of attention. Uh, but when you do have one that, that could be a little bit screwy, it does in fact mess with guys careers and their pocketbooks and their overall lives, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably kind of a big deal for a Kai Kara France, not to win this fight, to come out on the short end of the stick. Uh, so any poor or questionable judge's decision always has, ramifications and it affects guys negatively and i think we owe it to them to try to fix any of those problems all that said this one was real close this was a close fight and honestly maybe not that compelling of a fight to watch you asked me who i thought won it uh the honest to god answer is i don't really care i was trying to watch it it was kind of like it's a fight let's say this this was a fight that was real easy to have on in the background while you were doing something else uh, it seemed to me like it was mostly a stalemate. They traded punches on the feet. 
the odds or the stats, excuse me, would would have you believe Kai Kara France was way out in front, but it seemed fairly even to me. I think uh, was it Albazi probably won the third round, Car France probably won the fourth round, and then you know the rest of them were very very close. Uh, we're still you know umbrella big picture. We're still at a point where I don't totally understand the judging criteria. It seems like if if you're gonna prioritize damage over everything else that is is very subjective uh at least as subjective as the old criteria were and so you know you watch these fights and i get to the end of it and sometimes i don't totally know what the judges were looking at or what they're even supposed to be scoring but i'm sure we'll talk about some alternatives here in a second but my thing is like man you're always gonna have close fights doesn't matter what yeah. you do. doesn't matter which system you employ. Bring AI in to judge the fucking fights or whatever. You're always going to have fights that are razor close. And this was one of them. And Amir Aldazi won it. And Kai Kara France didn't. That's kind of the, the headline for me. Yeah, I also think that sometimes we got to make a distinction between what do the judging criteria say as far as you know what they're supposed to be looking for. But what do we also know about how it tends to go based on just experience of watching these things. One of the things and they talked about a little bit during the commentary mid fight here is that if you're watching a close fight where, especially you don't have punch stats in front of you, you're, you're right. I was surprised to see the stats on that one. Cause it did seem pretty even to me and you're watching this fight and it's going like, okay, nobody is clearly in, in most of these rounds. Nobody is clearly running away with it. Yeah, they're both pretty close and and are probably going to be decided by one or two punches or one or two moments of action here and there. And if one guy is the guy who seems to be in the center of the cage coming forward and the other guy is the one who is kind of circling with his back up against the fence and they mention that they're right, that it that shouldn't really matter. But it does. Yeah. Psychologically on the judges, we know that it kind of does. It's hard to win a really close fight going backwards. It's hard to win a close fight from the perimeter like that if all other things are pretty equal. And especially you look through those first couple rounds and you're just like, you can make a case either way yeah. if you wanted to. Uh, Kai Car France finished stronger in the fight. Uh, you also have a tough round to score there where one guy is controlling the dude on the ground for a whole lot of time, has a, a close submission. It looks like it might be over. And the other guy manages to finish that round on top, throwing down some elbows that look like they actually do some damage. Yeah. And you're like, okay, what's, what's worth more? The 30 seconds where you landed a couple clean strikes there or the two or three minutes where the other guy really had control of you and damn near submitted you. So whenever you get into a situation like that, we... I don't want to say that we should just throw our hands up and be like, well, fuck it. The judge is going to do some crazy shit, whatever they want to do. And that's just the way it goes. But when the fights are that close, I don't care what kind of system we come up with. There's always going to be some disagreement. There's always going to be some shit to argue about there. And I think that to some extent, we do have to make our peace with that. Where you lose me is where you have stuff. Like, I don't know if you saw Aaron Bronson or talking to uh, Mike Mazzulli from uh, the, the ABC and him talking about why he doesn't like to see judges out there explaining their scores and everything. And very few of his reasons seemed at all compelling to me. Yeah. Like they seem like it's just like a lot of it comes down to because the athletic commissions would like to kind of cover their ass and because they don't feel like they owe us any explanations. They feel like they just say, fuck you guys. Like you guys don't know anything about this and we don't have to explain anything to you. And the same three guys will be back in the judge chair next weekend. 
And that, I think, is where we have a problem. Like, California was one of the only states where I saw that they were actually making a concerted effort to evaluate judge performance. And if some guy is always on the wrong end of the split decision, to do something about it. And yeah. I, that, I think, is where we – if there's a an improvement to be made in MMA judging now, it's that there has to be a little bit more accountability and just like some kind of evaluation system and that you should be transparent about it. It shouldn't just be the athletic commission being like, Oh, no worry. This, this government bureaucracy is taking care of it. And we're not going to tell you anything about it. And you should just trust us. No, fuck you. That is not going to work. Yeah. Uh, I saw, and I saw Ariel talking about some of this stuff today about transparency with the judging. And uh, he was talking about how he reached out to a couple of athletic commission heads, Missouli being one of them, but he also talked to uh, the guy in California. What's that guy's name again? Andy Foster. Andy Foster. Apparently they have uh, a like post fight debriefing session where the judges come in and they talk about it. And that's open to the media, which I did not know before. Uh, but I agree that there should be some more transparency and accountability in this thing. You get that in other sports, you know, the, in many times, either the commissioners or the referees or whoever it may be are not totally inaccessible to the media. So I think that provides a little bit more transparency. And it seems to me like if you're the athletic commissions and you're going to kind of hide these people from us, like it just creates a situation where we're going to question what's going on. Like if, if everything is on yeah. the up and up, just like have them come out and explain what they saw in the round that they wanted to give it to the, to the one fighter and not the other. Like, and especially in a fight like this, every round was close enough that you could probably could have made a case. I understand, you know, one of these judges had round four for Albazi, which I thought was probably the most clearly Kai Kara France round, but you know, let's, let's hear him explain it. Maybe, maybe he talks us out of it. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I, or at least like just give us the the perception that you were answerable to somebody for this stuff and that you know you you have a reason that you can explain it and that it's not just a like here are the scorecards and then we're going to disappear back into the ether until it's time to come fuck up another event. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the main questions to ask here is how feasible any kind of judging uh, revolution or changes are because we talk about it constantly and yet it seems to me a little bit pie in the sky to think that some kind of huge innovating innovation in MMA judging is going to come down the road and we're going to adopt it like look man we're still out here using the 10 point must system only because it was enforced it was imposed on MMA when we first started sanctioning this thing because basically that's the the system that that boxing uses. And I don't even know if it's that applicable to MMA considering, uh, you know, the, the differences in the two sports. And we hear all these ideas. Oh, you should change the criteria. Oh, you should have more judges. You should have open scoring, all this different stuff. And I think open scoring is an interesting idea, even though it continually gets shouted down from boxing people who have seen it tried in their sport before. I know that they were using it in, in Invicta for a while. I don't know if they still are, but it doesn't seem like the sky fell over there in Kansas City where Invicta was using the open scoring. So it could be something to try. But I think part of the answer here is that we like this shit. Like without, you know, that we have to admit that we like this shit. Like if Kai Car France had won that decision, we probably wouldn't even be talking about that fight today. We would just be like, all right, on to the next one. They had a fairly forgettable main event of the UFC on ESPN over the weekend. But because there was even like a hint of controversy, now we get to be like, oh, a whole 24 hours of outrage in the news cycle about how we need to do something about this. But I don't know, man. Is anything ever going to get done? 
pr probably not. If we see any changes, it's just going to be more little tweaks like we've seen along the way. So in close fights like this, I would like to see us just kind of, you know, maybe have a little bit more sense about it. Yeah, especially because it's not like there's going to be a lack of other fights where it's less close and somebody gets screwed. Like we can we can reserve the outrage for those because there'll there'll still be some. You know? Yeah, I can will. guarantee that. All right, that's going to do it for round number 2. We'll be right back with round number 3. Well, Ben, we talked on Friday during the Patreon Power Hour over behind the paywall about Jared Gording being pulled out of this fight that he had scheduled as a late replacement himself with Jim Miller. But we wanted to circle back on it this week because there have been some new developments since last week. Dana White weighed in in a classically Dana White fashion after the event. Then an MMA manager came out on Twitter, gave us, you know, a little bit more information, some perhaps surprising news. So we thought it was fitting to discuss this again. Here's the recap for those who weren't up on it. As I said, Jared Gordon took this fight on 17 days notice after Lutfit Klein pulled out of his fight with Jim Miller. Uh, Jared Gordon weighed 193 pounds when he took this thing. So we thought that was going to be the issue, the issue, but it turned out it was his media day statements where he discussed the KO he suffered at the hands of Bobby green back on, I believe April 22nd. Here's his quote. He said, I had a minor concussion, but I got over the symptoms relatively quickly. I did everything I could do to recover supplements. I was in a hyperbaric chamber for the last six weeks, but at this point in my career, sometimes we got to risk it a little bit. If we, if we want to get what you want, I think a little bit of risk is okay. I'm risking it anyway when I get in there, even if I didn't have that outcome six weeks ago. And then he goes on to say about the UFC, they gave me a new contract and a bump in pay. And I think it was worth it. Now, once either the UFC or the state athletic commission in Nevada got wind of this interview, they pulled him out of the event. And as we saw, Jim Miller went out and knocked out Jesse Butler in 23 seconds. Then Dana White came to the post-fight press conference and he was he was questioned about it. And here's what he said. When you come in here on press day and you announce that you had a concussion six weeks ago and you healed yourself from the concussion, you're done. We're not going to let you fight with a concussion. Yeah, we pulled him because he should have told us that six weeks ago. You know what I mean? You should have shown at least the company and your opponent some respect and at least did that six weeks ago. You're not a fucking doctor. You didn't cure yourself uh, from a concussion. So what did he do? White said, did he get a concussion? Was he self-diagnosed or did he go to a doctor and did a doctor diagnose him with a concussion? You have to be honest when you get injuries. And of course, the minute we hear about it, no fight is worth keeping on. If it's going to risk somebody's health, safety, longevity, whatever it may be, we will pull you out in 2.5 seconds. So kind of a lot to unpack there. Uh, from these Dana White quotes. The other thing I guess I would say first is that when you read these Dana White quotes or listen to these Dana White quotes, it sounds as though he either thinks or he wants us to think that like this was something that happened to Jared Gordon in training or something like yeah. that. Not that this concussion was a thing that he suffered in a UFC fight in the state of Nevada that we all watched that took place in the same fucking building where they had him scheduled to go fight Jim Miller. Like, 
it's not like Jared Gordon tried to hide it from us. Like it happened during a, a televised UFC event against Bobby Green in late April. Like we saw it happen. I don't understand a lot of these quotes from Dana White where he's saying Jared Gordon needs to be honest about what happened. Like we all fucking saw it, man. It's like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about with this shit. Yeah, that's the thing is that you're acting like there's no way you could have known unless he told you. But you could have just watched the fight. And even if you weren't able to be like, that's a concussion, you could be like, well, that guy has clearly suffered some head trauma right here. Like, you had to know that part. And you had to know that part when you offered him the fight. And so it's like, it does make it seem like what you really take issue with is him saying the C word to the media. Yeah. Like, that's where he fucked up. And the idea that, oh, he should have told us. Well, he would probably think. Do I need to tell them that I I suffered a concussion when they saw me get knocked out? Because they saw that, right? Yeah. It was on their show. Yeah. And you know, one other reason why you might think if you were Jared Gordon that they knew that? Because it wasn't your idea for you to be in this fight. It was their idea. They called you up. They called your manager and said, hey, does Jared Gordon want to take this fight? And then he said, after some deliberation, by the way, yes, I'll take it. It wasn't Jared Gordon's idea. It was the UFC's idea. They gave him a new contract. In order to get him to sign it, they gave him more, more money. They gave him a bump in pay, he said, at the media day. And then all of a sudden, the UFC is going to be like, oh, we didn't know anything was going on with Jared Gordon. He didn't tell us about the concussion. Well, if you're telling us that he needed to tell you about the concussion, then I would ha- ask, what kind of post-fight care does the UFC offer? If you don't want Jared Gordon healing himself from his concussion or whatever he did, we don't know that that's what he did, by the way. If you don't want him, quote-unquote, healing himself after a fight that he had in the UFC... What kind of the, of medical care is the UFC giving him? Are they checking him out post-fight? Are they seeing if he had a concussion? We always see these stories in the press about how the UFC will pay for your surgery if you blow out your knee or something like that in, in a fight. What about a concussion? Like, uh, just say, hey, Jared, thanks for coming, bud. We'll see you, uh, what, in about four weeks? Cool. Yeah. Like, what, what are they even doing? Well, yeah, and that's also, like, a concussion is also one of those things where, uh, like Dana White kind of says, and it seems like Dana White himself should know the answer to these questions where he says, so what did he do? Did he get a concussion? Was he self-diagnosed or did he go to a doctor? And did a doctor diagnose him with a concussion? Seems like you should know the answer to that. But both when you offer him his next fight right after he just lost one uh, and when you pull him from the fight, seems like you should know what the answer to those questions is. Because especially with concussions a lot of time, what guys might be saying is, I got knocked out and for a few days afterwards I felt fucked up. And I went, that's probably a concussion. You know, maybe for a week or so or more, I felt fucked up afterwards. And I went, that's probably a concussion. I've done that. I've suffered bonks on the head in, in various sporting endeavors. And then afterwards, I've been like, well, that was probably a concussion based on how I still feel, you know, one or two days later. And he might have just been saying that. But if you're going to be like, okay, hey, as soon as he says the word to the media, boom, he's out. Yeah. Just because of this abundance of precautions that we are taking then how did that same abundance of precautions not extend to just you saw him get knocked out so recently you know and it's also promoters would like to do this and the athletic commissions also like to do this where they're they want to say as soon as some fighter actually tells us what's going on with them they want to be like well we are shocked we cannot believe that he would disregard safety protocols and try to go through with a fight like this when in reality If you really meant it when you were like, we need you all to tell us about all the injuries you have so that we can pull you out if there's anything going wrong with you, you'd never be able to make your content schedule. 
because you would have to cancel so many goddamn fights. We know that. Fighters tell us that all the time when they're willing to be honest about it. And sometimes it seems like if you were going to come down on them and be like, how dare they? Really, the end effect of that is going to be that to make the fighters not tell us anything. It's not going to make them take fewer of these fights because they need the money. Yeah. It's going to make them just shut up about it more, which doesn't exactly make the sport safer. Just, you know, it's all it's doing is encouraging fighters to hide more of what's really going on with them because they see, well, when you tell the truth, you lose your fight and the boss gets out there and talks a bunch of shit about you. Yeah. I mean, if John Morgan can come to the media day and ask a question about whether or not Jared Gordon's camp talked about if it was safe for him to take this fight, something tells me that the UFC and the Athletic Commission probably uh, could have known also what was going on. With Jared Gordon. Yeah. But this brings up another question. I want to get into this tweet from uh, Danny Rubenstein in a second, but we still doing medical suspensions? Is that a thing? We still doing that? Because uh, there was some talk online about how, among other things now, the Nevada Athletic Commission has stopped releasing to the media medical suspensions, whether or not they hand them out or what the lengths of those things are. Because I got to tell you, I went back and counted just to make sure this was 42 days between fights for Jared Gordon, between getting knocked out by Bobby Green in a clash of heads that was uh, ultimately ruled a no contest until he was supposed to fight on Saturday. 42 days. So, like, if you had given him a 90-day suspension, which, uh, you know, six weeks, 90 days, whatever it is, would be kind of standard for a medical suspension in the wake of a concussion, he would be just about halfway through it to go in and take this fight against Jim Miller. So, like... Are we doing that? Are we even doing medical suspensions anymore? Or did we just chuck it in the fucking bucket and be like, yeah, we're not doing that? Yeah, I mean, we were never doing a whole lot with it anyway, right? Just because like, the nature of how the sport is set up does not lend itself to really actually doing something like that for real. Because one part about it is that when everybody's an independent contractor and they show up to the event, you know what they're about on fight week. You have a lot of control over them. Uh, at, like throughout that entire week. And then, you know, sometimes the UFC will have people at the apex or, I mean, at the performance Institute for, uh, some kind of healthcare, physical therapy, stuff like that. But a lot of time they're just going home, kind of scattered into the wind and at times all over the world. And we don't really have anybody who has both like the, the clear job of it or the ability to do it or the the incentive to do it to be the the body that's supposed to be taking care of all these guys and, and making sure that we're keeping an eye on them and that everybody is abiding by their medical suspensions. Because a lot of this time, it'll be like no contact for 90 days. They're not doing that. They're going back to their gyms and they're going to get back in there whenever they feel like they can, especially when they know that there might be a, a fight offer that they need to stay ready for. And so, who do you have that is out there supposed to be making sure that they're doing it? It seems like you're just, it's totally just a cover your ass kind of thing to begin with. And nobody actually cares to be sure if it's actually happening. So, uh, Mookie Alexander, who, uh, a former associate editor at bloody elbow tweeted in the wake of this Dana white media day thing. He said, I'm not being a dick here. And this is a genuine question. Has Nevada stopped releasing medical suspension? Because it seems like they have, I see nothing from any UFC Vegas shows, pay-per-view or apex from this year. Then, uh, Nolan King from MMA junkie replied to say, yes, all we have access to now is to see the status of licenses suspended or not suspended. We can't see durations or reasons for suspensions to which noted MMA manager, 
Danny Rubenstein, who manages Peter Yawn and Shavkat Rachmanov and a bunch of other uh, fighters in the UFC, replies to say, neither can we. We just get told by the promoter what suspensions the fighters have and what is needed for it to be cleared. I've lobbied for a limited login to the ABC database to check my fighter's suspensions and licenses and was denied. So that seems pretty strange if we are, in fact, even doing medical suspensions anymore. We're apparently not really telling the managers or the, I don't know, are we telling the fighters but not the managers? It's unclear, a lot of stuff here, but... uh, Seems a little, seems a little, dare I say, shady to do it that way. Yeah, and it also seems like this is something where if you want to have a chance of people actually abiding by it, then you you don't want there to be any confusion at all. That you'd want there to be as much possible information as you can give them. You know, I, I don't know why that part is difficult. It just Like, to me, it just seems like it makes it so much clearer that the athletic commissions don't actually care about making sure that this stuff is followed. They just feel like, well, we got to say this thing so that if you do mess yourself up and try to come back and sue us later, we can say we did our part to stop you from it. Yeah. You know, as an addendum, speaking of booking guys in fights that maybe they shouldn't be in, uh, you know what the UFC just did was booked Bobby green into a fight against Tony Ferguson. Just a few days after Tony Ferguson had that, apparent drunk driving incident where he flipped his truck over and i'll just go ahead you know sign him up to fight bobby green i guess he has pleaded not guilty okay <laughs> well, i saw that headline all good then it's all good all right let's do just saying stuff and uh then we'll get out of here for this week ben i couldn't help but notice on instagram that our guy patrick patty pimblet got married a couple weeks ago Married his, hey, hey, con- congratulations to Patty Pimblett, married his longtime girlfriend, uh, slew of pictures over there on Instagram in case you're, you're interested in seeing the affair. It looks like they had a, a classy time. Looks like maybe they got married at like a castle or something like that. Uh, so congratulations to Patty gets married, comes back, maybe should still be on his honeymoon. This is just days later. Here's gets on his YouTube channel and here's what he says about returning from, I believe the ankle surgery that he just had. He said, I can't wait. I'm hoping to fight before the end of the year, to be honest. Kick some little farts head in. I was shit in my last fight, lad. It was a bad performance. I've said it myself. You're only as good as your last fight, and I looked shit. But when I come back, everyone will be sucking my arse again. Hmm. So I'm just saying, congratulations, Patty, on your recent marriage. Wait, it looked like a classy affair. My guy, get out there in your three-piece suit, get married to your longtime girlfriend. Congratulations. Really great to see. Really great to see you getting married. Sucking my arse again. Sucking my arse. Should still be on his honeymoon, as far as I can see. This was days ago he got married. Not too long at all. Now he's out here on his YouTube channel talking about who should be sucking his arse. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying the big homie Mark Zuckerberg is a jujitsu dude for real. And you know how you can tell? It's because he's got people out here issuing statements denying any claim that he was choked out in a jujitsu tournament. This from the New York Times, where uh, there was a New York Times report basically about what's been going on with Mark Zuckerberg, maybe having some hard times lately. And it mentions, says that he was choked unconscious by an Uber engineer during a jujitsu match uh, and that the referee had to stop it because he could hear Mark Zuckerberg snoring. 
But then Mark Zuckerberg is going to get his team on this one. You know, they could say whatever they want about a role you might have played in various genocides or misinformation campaigns that, you know, that could topple whole governments or uh, strip certain people of their freedoms, whatever. That's all fine and good. But don't they dare say that you got choked out in a jujitsu match. A spokesman for Meta, Elena Wildman, told the Daily Beast at no point during the competition was Mark knocked unconscious. That never happened. Uh, and that the referee said Whitman said a fellow Meta employee witnessed the match firsthand and that the referee in question, quote, apologized to Mark and his coach after the match for prematurely calling the match. And the New York Times reporter says, after publishing our story, I heard from both Mark Zuckerberg and his Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach. They both insisted that Mark Zuckerberg had not lost consciousness. <laughs> and the coach said that the referee had mistaken his effortful grunting for snores. Oh, wow. Put it in a Gracie autobiography. I'm just saying this week, Mark, take it from a guy who has spent the last several years denying claims that Brad Monahan passed his guard <laughs> with Chad Dundas offering coaching tips. Once you end up on this end of it, once you end up trying to deny these claims about something that happened on the mats, you've already lost. People will never believe you. Take my word for it. They still think Brad Monahan passed my guard as ludicrous a, su a suggestion as that obviously is. I'm still fighting those allegations. Mark, you can't win on this one. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Of course, we'll be over on the Patreon page all week. Join us over there for Wednesday's live chat, Thursday's doing the damn thing, and Friday's power hour. If you feel like you want to get in the doors, come to patreon.com slash co-main event. We're about to get into a little after hours for our $20 patrons. Thanks to everybody else for listening. When we return, everybody will be sucking our arse once again. But as for now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Did you see uh, KSW 83 over the weekend? See this? I saw some clips. You know I love me some KSW. We're going to get out here yeah. beating the giant drums, setting off the fireworks, occasionally having a giant robotic spider come down from the ceiling. Do you see this highlight of the dude knocking out this other dude from the bottom? When he's yep. the other guy's got full mount on him, I would love to be able to pronounce the names of either of the guys in this fight. Christoph Glowacki was taking on bare knuckle boxer Patrick Tolkazuski. I don't know, just ballparking it. Who was making his uh, pro MMA debut? It looked like uh, Glowicki was on the bottom, and he just. He, Threw a nice little punch here. Knocks out yeah. uh, Tolkazuski from the bottom. Just knocks him out cold. Guy goes right down on his face. That's not something you see every day. Nope. Not outside of the old Pride FC video game for PlayStation. It's not. 